0: All right, hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Gay Men Going Deeper, a podcast series by the Gay Men's Brotherhood where we talk about all things personal development, sexuality, and mental health. Today, I'm your host, Callan Brecken. And last week, we talked about suicide and the stats associated with the LGBTQ community. And this week, we're gonna be unpacking a key aspect of that topic and a contributing factor, which is depression. Depression is one of the most common mental health conditions in the United States that affects an estimated 17.3 million adults and 3.2 million adolescents, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. Research shows that gay men and bisexual men are at a higher risk for major depression, bipolar disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder, and are more likely than heterosexual men to attempt suicide. Today, my guest is Jacob Monkarsh. Jacob is a licensed marriage and family therapist, both in California and Colorado, and is located in Los Angeles. He primarily works with young men ages 19 to 39 to help deepen their understanding and connection with themselves and the people in their lives. From both his lived experience and clinical work he's learned that giving voice to the voiceless no matter who they are or how they identify is a passion and a privilege he holds dear together we're going to be exploring questions like what is depression and how does it affect a person is it possible for someone to be depressed without knowing it what are the signs and symptoms someone should be aware of what are the biggest triggers for gay men struggling with depression How can someone currently struggling with depression work to get out of the cycle, and how can people best support someone struggling with depression. So I want to first say thank you so much for joining me on today's show Jacob. I am so excited to dive into today's topic because we have had this question about depression so many times in in our group and in our like just our community everybody wants to talk about kind of these deeper harder hitting topics so I'm really grateful to have you so welcome why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit to everybody hello
1: yes thank you thank you so much for having me and I'm excited to dive deeper into this it's um there's a lot there's a lot of play here and I think it's it's something that a lot of people can resonate with so thank you so much for giving me this opportunity.
0: Of course. So tell us more about yourself. Where did this all start for you?
1: So for me, uh, my journey kind of starts. I'm an undergrad in uh, college in Orange County in California. I am a very depressed freshman uh, in college. I am in film school. And what I find myself gravitating to in all my creative work is really just trying to process what's going on for me and really not kind of knowing why I feel disconnected and why I feel like that I'm missing something. Um, Part of my, one of my professors said, oh, for your uh, screenwriting and your writing work, you should take a psych class and uh, learn a little bit to help your characters. And I, I took a psych class and it just, everything clicked for me. And I found myself really passionate about really what I was doing in my creative work, which is trying to understand people and understand myself better and kind of took me on a road to where I am now, which is, yeah, working with young men and really helping them uh, get to know themselves better and feel, uh, get that experience of feeling safe.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm so excited and I'm so grateful to have you um, on the podcast today, because like I said, this is such a big topic that A lot of gay men struggle with. And I think as gay men, we're kind of hit with almost double edged swords when we're growing up. That it's like, you know, growing up, you have to hide who you are. You have to pretend that, you know, you fit into the norm. And then that is going to automatically. Predis, you're, you're, you have a predisposition to being depressed because you're hiding so many parts of you. And I've seen it time and time again. Um, I know people don't love this person, but Colton Underwood, like he had a lot of mental health issues because he was hiding so desperately who he was. And, you know, other gay men and other celebrities who have come out to say, you know, what it was like to be in the closet. And then afterwards, and so many of us personally have gone through that journey of being like, Man, like, I remember being young, and it being my worst fear, and I just hated myself, and I hated life. And it was just, it was a really awful experience. I don't think I was depressed when I was younger. Um, I'll talk about that later on in today's episode, I've experienced that more as an adult. but I definitely had uh, depression runs in the female side of my family. So my mom really struggled with depression, especially going through um, you know the later part of her marriage and then the divorce from my father. And my mm-hmm. sister also just struggled with a lot of mental health issues, not just depression, like a lot of things. Um, so let's dive right into it. What is depression and how does it affect uh, how does it affect a person? Right. So I think what you just said is, um,
1: it's kind of where we start, right? So we start by kind of, we're speaking specifically about gay men and we're talking about how when we're younger, we don't know what, what's kind of going on and the foundation we're building, right? It's not necessarily a conscious process of what parts of myself am I putting in here? What parts of myself am I letting people see? But what's happening is as we kind of move through that world unconsciously, we're kind of forming these connections about what do i need to disconnect from what uh, how do i disconnect from things and how do i keep myself safe right so when we're young gay kids and we're running around and we're getting all these messages from our parents we're getting our messages from society our friends in the classroom we're picking up all these messages around how do i fit in here and how do i make sure i can stay here feeling safe and sadly what happens is is we what depression is is it's a really, it's a maladaptive coping mechanism. So I say that because what we talk about when we talk about like somatic therapy, which is, you know, therapy that focuses on the body, we, we focus on the nervous system and our nervous systems are amazing at what they do. They are amazing. So when we feel a threat come in, right? We talk a lot about uh, the, the classic example is uh, when you're face-to-face with like a lion, when you see a lion, what happens is your brain goes, there's a threat. I do not want to be eaten by the lion. And so we're going to kick in the system that kind of kicks in our fight or flight or freeze response. And that's usually where we start talking about anxiety, right? So we talk about how that works. But what happens when that lion, when, you're, when your mind and your body realize that you're not able to run away from the lion, when you're not able to um, fight the lion, run away from the lion or freeze and hope the lion doesn't see you? what ends up happening is your body says, okay, look, I'm gonna help you out. I'm gonna start shutting things down because the next thing that's gonna happen is it's gonna hurt and we don't want you to hurt. So we are gonna start shutting down your energy. We're gonna start shutting down any desire, any pain uh, sensitivity. And it really is kind of this amazing response our body has to trying to protect us from pain and ex- protect us from feeling things that feel intolerable. Now, I don't know how many of us uh, have experienced being in front of a lion, but the lions are different now. And you know, when you're a gay kid um, or any kid, the things that feel threatening are rejection, uh, not feeling safe, not feeling accepted. Um, and those can really start to feel truly life threatening. And so as we get older, um, some of the coping skills that we learn to kind of cover up those things right being funny um, being extroverted being a hard worker being really organized right directing and getting praise and validation in other ways they start to lose their kind of kick and what we come to realize is there's a lot of pain there that was really hard for us to really sit with and tolerate and so our bodies sometimes try to take care of us in a way where it doesn't feel like it's taking care of us right it feels really disconnected and really difficult and really both um i mean you said it if that say it all such a normal experience but such a deeply personal experience that it's it's hard to even recognize sometimes that other people might
0: feel the same way hmm So you've unpacked a lot um, right there at the beginning part of it. Um, And I think what you were talking about somatically, um, there's something called somatic experiencing, which I'm sure you are aware of what somatic experiencing is, and we can definitely dive into that. Um, But all the good juicy stuff that you were just talking about in regards to experiencing the things that we go through, the fight, flight, or freeze we experience that as kids, like when you're on the playground, bullying, all of these kinds of things, and they compound in your body. And the human experience, and as humans, we are one of the few species that actually go through the process of letting go of that experience. Because you know, when an animal goes through a traumatic experience, they've seen this before. Um, I believe it's Dr. Peter Levine did the whole study. He's you know, the father of somatic experiencing. Um, when an animal goes through that traumatic experience, you see them, you know, say the lion comes and attacks the gazelle and the gazelles on the ground, but then the lion gets distracted and the gazelle can manage to like they have frozen, but then now they can get away. So then the, um, uh, what's it called? The, the, uh, the, th- the thing that gives you the energy, what's that word? Adrenaline. Adrenaline. There you go. The adrenaline kicks in and it takes off. And then once it stops. And it kind of starts walking again because it's like, oh, I'm okay. It does like this shake thing where it just shakes everything off because it's shaking off the extra adrenaline. But what we do as human beings is we lock it all inside and we hold it tight and it gets stuck inside of our bodies. Um, And so it's a really fascinating work. I I highly suggest anybody um, who's interested in this to look up uh, somatic experiencing because it really has helped me move through a lot of my anxieties and things that i've had to process because i was not a very body oriented type person i'm a very methodical mental person and so for me doing things like yoga or just even like playing gay dodgeball on mondays and being physical because i was never athletic helps me get into my body so that my body can release those energies and even something like um this is going to sound so crazy and so weird, but I have this reoccurring dream where I'm on the, the side of the CN Tower in Toronto and I'm like leaning off and I'm scared. Like it scares me. Like it, I've woken up having anxiety, like attacks from it. Um, But now I don't because if I'm having that, usually it's as I'm drifting off. And what I do instead of just letting myself get scared is I give into the fear of it and I squeeze all my muscles really tight and I let my body shake. And if I need to like, not scream, but like, let out a little like, uh, and like, pretend that I'm experiencing it, let my body experience it, it can release the energy of it, and then boom, I can fall asleep. And it, I didn't realize the correlations of body and mind until I went through that experience. Um, So yeah, so I'm I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, um, but let's continue on with the questions. Um, for people who are experiencing depression, is it possible, or people who are not, is it possible for someone to be depressed without knowing that they have depression?
1: Absolutely. I think actually, um, I think this shocking thing about uh, the statistics that you that you quoted is that those are people who report depression, right? Or um, I think what people don't really recognize and what doesn't get talked about enough is depression is, is, is a state, right? I know we talk about it as a diagnosis. We talk about it as there's definitely times where depression um, becomes more of an acute like, thing that needs to be solved and gets in the way. of. But I think truly it's an experience that most people probably can resonate in some manner right? What we're, and what, so we're talking about kind of what happened to our body when it can't cope with something. And so, right, we're, when we talk about major depressive and what we kind of see in therapy rooms um, or right talking about people who've suicided, that's kind of, I think, where we have this kind of split of like, oh, I'm not that, I don't know, I don't know that experience. And we kind of put a, push it aside and kind of push aside our own experience of, but I really do know what it's like to feel that kind of emptiness, that, that, uh, laziness, that unmotivated, that unfocusedness. Um, I can speak from my personal experience before I got into mental health. Like I said, my freshman year of college, I was looking back on it very depressed, but had no idea what was going on. I had no idea that there was something that needed to be talked about or something that could be addressed. I just kind of thought, you know, college me seems pretty uh, unsocial and and kind of, and it, it builds on that narrative and that shame that something's wrong with me, right? So not only am Am I gay and trying to figure that out and trying to struggle with that? I'm also wrong because I don't want to go socialize. I don't want to to go to class, right? And instead of saying, oh, there's actually something that needs to be addressed here, it kind of compounds that feeling that something, that I'm alone in this. Um, And so, yeah, I definitely think there's so many of us that go out into the world and are experiencing a lot of the symptomology that we call depression and kind of write it up as this is who I am, this is how I'll always be and don't see it as something that really can be um, addressed and and shifted and different.
0: So what are some of those signs and symptoms someone should be aware of if they're having that experience where it's like, like, I think I've experienced depression, but I didn't know it was depression. So what you've already kind of just mentioned a couple of them, but what are some signs and symptoms that are really like, oh, I should pay more attention here. It's not just me being a little bit lazy or being a little bit like, rah, it's like getting towards the clinical depression side of things.
1: Yeah. So, um, and this is the part that I, I, I find truly fascinating about um, people who experience depression and kind of what I was speaking to before, where they really feel like they're the only ones that everyone else is kind of fine and functioning perfectly. And they there's just something wrong with them. So the things I hear a lot are, I'm feeling heavy, I feel numb, Um, I feel apathetic, I feel lazy, unmotivated, unfocused. Um, I feel isolated uh, and alone, even though I have friends and I go to work and I'm having interactions, I still kind of can't necessarily feel those interactions. Uh, And then we kind of move into the more Cognitive part of it, you know, the the self worth, how that critical mind of kind of you're the problem, you're not enough, right? Shame, uh, the, the feeling is shame, but the way that most people experience shame often is that self critic kind of gets really loud, and you're the reason, right? No one wants to talk to you, no one wants to connect with you. It becomes really self attacking, um and then we have the hopelessness and the helplessness that things can change. So when you start seeing things uh, and your experience more as fact, right? The things that you believe about yourself are, are like, no, this is the way it is. And this is how people perceive me, as opposed to realizing that they're actually distortions, right? They're distortions that other people aren't necessarily thinking, feeling, or perceiving you the way that you perceive yourself. Um, those are, I, I just went through a lot of different experiences, <laughs> I know, um, but they have a similar theme, right? Where it's hard to you feel disconnected and it's hard to take things in. It's hard to take good things in. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: And And, and we're going to unpack that later on. If those are the things you are experiencing, how you can get out of those cycles and how you can move out of those cycles. Cause those are a lot of, when you get into that headspace of like, and I've been there, especially through the pandemic, like, Mm. Oh my goodness, through the pandemic, I consider myself a positive person. I like to think positively. I like to have, Um, hope. I think hope is one of the biggest key aspects of not getting into that cycle of depression, like the deep rooted depression that even if there's a kernel of hope, you're like, okay, but like tomorrow can be different. This isn't going to be forever. Like those little tiny things to hold on to. Those were the things that kept me going, but during the pandemic, it, it was so hard because we're such social beings to be locked in. And I, I'm so grateful that I had a roommate. A lot of people say, I know a couple of people who are like, oh, no, I'm so grateful I didn't have a roommate because it would have gone crazy. And I was like, I'm the opposite. I think I'm, I'm so good at being alone and I really value being alone. I'm an introvert at heart, so I could be alone for days and like be OK with it. But I still do need that interaction like once a week or twice a week to just kind of fill me my cup up. And then I'm like, okay, I'm good. Um, but not having that and only having like one person as your roommate and you're, you're both going through the same experience so nothing's different, nothing new is coming up and you're both just trying to struggle through it. It was really, really freaking hard. Um, so a lot of the things that you were talking about, definitely. I felt those I'm really curious though. Um, to kind of bring it to the, the gay side of things. Yeah. What are kind of the biggest triggers specifically for gay men struggling with depression? And I kind of put some examples in here, um, and I'm, I'm curious about your work specifically, because I know that there's things like a body obsession culture and drinking and drugs and how we just interact as a culture. How do those things all factor into gay men and how we experience depression or how it can trigger uh, experiencing depression?
1: Yeah, so what I, you know, this question, I think, goes back to kind of this previous kind of overall about depression, right? Like kind of the origin story of it. And what I like to, you know, I, ha- I spoke to another colleague uh, who works a lot with gay men. And he said something kind of shocking to me. He said, the amount of clients that I sit with who say they can't remember their childhoods, it, they, it feels murky, they, they don't have necessarily, they don't aren't able to necessarily speak to it. And the way we were talking about it that I found so intriguing is what happens to someone when they don't feel connected to themselves and they can't take things in, right? When when you grow up having to uh, learn, right? Putting on a mask, wearing all these things where you kind of put some distance in and what, and what ends up happening to that person when they grow up. And I think when we talk about the images we see as gay men about what it means to be a gay man or the ideal gay man, um, when we talk about what a relationship between two men can look like or should look like or feel like. Um, and we also have all these other messages that we've been taking in and internalizing about what's right, what's wrong, what I should feel, what I shouldn't feel, what I should be attracted to. It, it causes this kind of, almost this kind of, you know, obsession's a strong word, but it does start to feel like this really important that I do things right, I have to do this right and so
0: perfectionism big time yeah
1: perfectionism and 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 pushing yourself almost to an extent where i i I work with a lot of gay men who are burnt out right accomplishments i need to accomplish a lot of things i need to um push myself another because in this realm in this part of my world it's not enough and, and i'll never get the validation and praise that i need for it so i will try to um focus on my diet, right? I'll focus on external things. I'll focus on my diet, I'll focus on my body. I will, if I'm feeling really socially anxious and not enough, but I want to go out and be fun in this, I will, I'll drink that voice away. And the thing, you know, I know there's obviously a lot of talk around drugs and alcohol. And um, the, the thing is that the truth is that they work in what they do. I wouldn't say the healthiest way, but when you don't want to feel a certain way, And you want to present a a certain way drinking and drugs ends up being maladaptive sure but a way for you to enter the world that may be really disruptive for you and bring Mm -hmm. up a lot of feelings that you're really trying that would be intolerable for you to feel in a gay bar in a gay relationship things that become kind of overstimulating
0: yeah to be able to access that world and 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 it's uh, this might sound controversial but it's like I'm going to be perfect at all of these things over here to make up for the fact that I'm gay. Mm -hmm. And I like, I've seen that so much in the gay community with that perfectionism with that burnout. If I can be perfect at everything over here and tell the show the world how perfect I am, it'll make up for the fact that I'm gay. And it's just wild. And then going into the drugs and the alcohol it's, mm-hmm. for me, it's kind of like, you know how kids have like wild abandon. They're just like, they, do, they don't They do give two fucks about anybody else. Yeah. That is kind of what happens with drugs and alcohol is that your inhibitions, you can let go of all the hangups you've had and you can kind of almost get back to that childlike state of like, oh, this is the, like, I can have fun in the world. But the thing is, is that you can do that without drugs and alcohol. But if you don't feel safe doing that or you don't know how to do that or you don't know how to process that or how to get there, which it takes doing a lot of this work to get there, um, of course, you're going to turn to drugs and alcohol in order to kind of access that because that's where you feel free. That's where you feel like, oh, I'm connected again. Exactly. And I think
1: um, drugs and alcohol, food, exercise. And I think the food and exercise part is because, right? We can we can say that's hel- it's healthy. Right? It's you know to eat clean, to to work out, to work out your body. You said it yourself. Yoga, an amazing somatic experience, and really helps kind of get you in your body. I think the thing that becomes very very um, hard for some of us who've gone through this experience to um, take in is that coming out is not the end of the process. When we come out and we tell everyone, we think, but I'm out, I'm going out, I'm going to gay spaces, I have gay friends, why, why? in what world would I not um, be okay with being gay? I, I'm here, I'm, I'm. and we disregard the lifetime, right? The, the childhood, the adolescence, the adult years before we were out that had an impact on our relationship with that part of us. And we were like, but no, we came out, we already did that part, we, we accepted ourselves, we go to the pride parades, we, we, we go to the gay dodgeballs, balls, right? We, I'm, I'm here, I'm doing it. And it's hard for us sometimes to understand that the 12 year old that was really afraid of being gay, the 15 year old that had a crush on his friend but didn't know if he liked him back or felt uncomfortable around, will this person like me? Will they, be, will they hate me if they knew this? those parts stay with us, right? Like you said, as humans, we absorb, we absorb those experiences and they end up working in our unconscious. Um, And so that I think is the thing that gives gay men and other queer people this double-edged sword and why we are so um, disproportionately affected by kind of mental illness and depression, especially because we have very, very from day one, a unique experience of knowing that we're different we don't know why, but we know that we sometimes we feel it as maybe we're magic, right? Maybe we, I, I, I know a lot of young gay boys um, who's, who were waiting for like, oh, something special, like that something's going to happen to me one day where I finally things will make sense. They don't know what it what that is per se, but at some point that starts to turn into uh, a negative, right? There's something different about me that I can't necessarily connect with or feel safe around my peers in. Um, I don't know if you have this experience, but I remember whenever the word gay was brought up in school, I always thought all eyes were on me. I thought for some reason that everyone else was thinking that that I was the one that they were talking oh, about. Oh, I right knew now.
0: everybody because everybody would say it to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so there's that experience, right? of
0: Being othered.
1: Mm-hmm. And so this really, really deep sense of something being wrong. Yeah. So that even when we come out, and we start living the life we've always wanted to live in a congruent life, right? Living with our past, we still have to process and we have to kind of undo the damage that was done to us, sadly, from society, family, and all those interactions. Um, and quite frankly, I, you know, I say this to my clients, um, it's not fair what happened to us. It's not fair what happened to you, but it is your responsibility to, if you want to clean it up right we want to do that and do that work
0: oh 100 and you have to if you want to if you want to move forward you have to look backwards sometimes in order to do that And I want to go back to this comment you made about what happens when someone can't connect with themselves. and I want to talk about maybe disassociation about that younger self and how you were talking about how some clients don't really recall their childhood and I mean I recall like I recall a lot of things of my childhood but I wouldn't say that there's a lot of like positive things that I do look to, or there's like things that I just, I'm like, Oh, well that must've happened, but I can't really remember it, especially before my parents' divorce. And Mm. that was like my really younger years. And like, maybe it wasn't until like I was like 10 or 11 that I really started creating solid memories. And even then they weren't like great ones, but like from like real childhood, childhood, like they're very few and far between Kind of sparse memories. And so, what's this kind of disassociation that happens there that you've been finding with your work? And I love that question. I love that question
1: so much because it, it goes back to how do we take things in if we're not living in our body, right? Can we take in good, bad, neutral memories when we're so disconnected and in an anxious state? You know, I'm not saying that all um, gay kids are anxious, but when you're not fully present because you can't be due to safety, it's going to be hard to really take things in. So I, I think about this. I think about the young gay kid who um, really loved dancing or, or performing, right? Really loved and, and, and used to put on performances for their dad and mom. And would be like, look, I came up with a dance. And the message they get is don't, boys don't do that or boys shouldn't be doing that. And you're instantly getting this message of this thing that really brought you joy and this thing that really felt fun, wrong, bad. We shouldn't do that. We're not. And and you learn that the things I like aren't aren't things I should like, or or they make other people they they don't make mom and dad happy, or they make they make me bullied. Right? I become a target of bullying. Um, and so it becomes a protective factor to disconnect from those things, those desires and those wants. Um, And it's a a devastating experience, but a protective one that I'm not gonna fully be here, right? I'm gonna focus on the external. I'm gonna focus on my grades. I'm gonna focus on being the A plus student, um, the teacher's pet per se, right? I know that's a little stereotype, but- But also the
0: opposite of like the total disconnected one who's the troublemaker who doesn't do anything well.
1: You're gonna get attention, right? Being funny, you're gonna pull away from the things that feel bad. But, you're, but you're, you're constantly working to get something, right? You're, you're constantly negotiating with yourself. Where can I get safety, acceptance, connection, and it's not being fully authentic in you in that moment? And so this disassociation, and, and I do think that's a good word to use because we talk about dis- disassociation as like complete out-of-body but I think as gay people, we, we have this experience of knowing how to enter a room and perform. We know how to move through. We know how to make those connections, those pivots without, without outing ourselves all the time and negotiating. You know, Even after you come out initially, like every time you meet a new coworker, every time you meet a new friend, do they know, do they not know, do I tell every them? Every
0: time. It's When what you is- come out, it's for life. Cause yeah. And then I hate this comment where like, oh, I couldn't tell you'd never know that you're gay. And I'm like, that's not exactly a compliment. Like, yeah. is there a specific way that we're supposed to act like that should, that it shouldn't be like, oh, okay, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a comment on top of it. It should just be like, oh, okay. Like, because when you go there, then that automatically creates the space where it's like, oh, being gay is different. Being gay is bad, but you don't fit into that category, which is creating it, which is, ah, uh, ah, uh, drives me crazy. <laughs> but it, I think it, and I, I'm
1: gonna plug a little bit for LGBTQ talk space here, therapy space here, because, which is the, um, you, you mentioned it before, right? It's, it's why as gay people, we often want therapists that can mirror back our experiences. When we have lived our life not feeling the same as others, you, you, you um, crave sameness. And that's not to say that when a gay man sits in front of me, I assume I know exactly what their experience has been, or that their relationship with their queerness or their gender or their sexuality is the same as mine. But they can know, um, I don't need to explain myself here. I know that even if I have to tell you my story, I don't need to tell you the queer story. I don't need to tell you um, or explain why I feel different. That experience, I think, is universal as someone who's lived outside of kind of the norm, right? And so um, I think, and I think we'll get to this, and I I don't know if if this is a good segue to this, but like the, how do we deal with these feelings and how do we kind of resolve them? We find spaces where we can feel seen and heard. I don't know if you're familiar with The Velvet Rage. The yes, kind of, the...
0: of course. Every gay is familiar with it. Yeah. It's still, how many decades or years later, it's still like a number one bestseller and like still yeah. everybody always talks about that book.
1: And I would, I you know, and I have my own thoughts about the like, right, how that book has aged and, and, and maybe some updates we need to make to that book. But I mm-hmm. think the concept of it is really striking about, when we when when we as gay men but as people feel unseen and unheard the um, the intense feeling of i need to do something to know that i exist because no one else seems to see that i exist or this part of me exists when going back to kind of the sh- our nervous system kind of shutting down and protecting us from pain think about how painful it is i mean i don't think you need to think it you may be intimately familiar with it but the feeling of, do I exist? Is this part of me real? Why is no one kind of feeding it? Why, why do I feel like I'm keeping it in the closet? The amount of rage and pain that really creates in someone, of course, your body's going to want to disconnect from that and take care of that. Because there's not many spaces where you can walk into and scream and yell and, you know.
0: And And that's okay. And to that, to normalize
1: that, right you're not being dramatic right i think as uh, gay men we get you're being too much you're being yeah. dramatic um and it's this message of like oh i'm not supposed to release these feelings because people get uncomfortable people don't like it people reject those feelings so this is kind of me dipping my toe into that of finding spaces in people where you can live your full experience and i'm biased I think the therapy space is is a really good space to get some of that.
0: And it is because we've had Jake (laughs) on the show before. If if you're listening to this episode and you've not uh, heard the episode I did with Jake Myers on therapy, you can go back. I think it's just a few episodes back um, and check that out as well. We talk a lot about the LGBTQ therapy space, which is a therapy environment for from and for LGBTQ plus individuals. So, and I think it's one of the first of its kind in in North America. Um, Mm -hmm. it's specifically American based for now. Um, but eventually it might spread further, but, um, but yeah, this is, this is what we were were talking about.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something about, and, and I think in that episode you talked about not, you know, your therapist doesn't always have to be Gay, right? You can have a really good um, experience with a non queer therapist. But the thing you get from meeting with someone, right? I think it's why we talk so much. And I love that uh, you mentioned dodgeball, why those things are so important for some people is that it creates community. It creates an opportunity for you to be around people where you can see yourself in them and they see you in that, right? There's this kind of bond and you don't need to explain it. I don't know if this is a tangent, but I'm thinking, have you watched that new Netflix show, Heartstopper?
0: Oh my God, yes! I I, I can't even, yeah, go for it. I'm like- Freaking love that show. Okay, if you've not watched it, this is a little plug for Heartstopper. Oh, it is, it gave me all the feels, all the cutenesses, all the vibes. And it was just so, it was just so right. It was just so like, oh my God. Like if I had that as if I was a kid, like, my little gay heart exploded me and my roommate literally started watching it this first Sunday it came out and we started like sometime in the early afternoon and we just watched the whole thing to the end we stayed up an extra hour late because we're like we need to finish this like we cannot go to bed because it is just so cute
1: I watched it twice in one weekend and and I was really sitting with why I was like there's something about this right and like I think as gay people we like gay content and again it's like a, a community thing but it it felt like feeding the younger part of me it felt like oh my god yeah and these young gay kid and right this the story of these young gay kids who the story isn't about i and there's a coming out process and no spoiler but like it is it deals with the themes in such a beautiful way and i found myself it really put me in touch for me my experience of what i didn't have so there was some sadness in watching it too right but it, it felt like it was a sadness of what that young gay boy didn't have, which was, can I see myself in love? Can I see myself connecting with others and having friends and just being free of the um, needing to wear this mask that I wasn't even aware of, right? It's so convoluted and complex, but the truth is in a sim- simple way, it, it also makes sense. It's like, do we, when you're a young gay kid and you don't see yourself in love stories, do you believe you're worthy
0: of love? Mm-hmm. And we're still unpacking that. We're going to be unpacking that for generations still, because that's the thing and that some people don't quite grasp in this immediate everything, give it to me now, you know, world is that change takes generations, not just a little bit of time, but like generational time and healing, you know, the destruction and anger and frustration and pain went on in generations. And it's going to have to come off in generations as well. So it's not just like, oh, you know, we've legalized gay marriage. You're fine. No, that's one little tiny check mark on the journey that is us being fully realized people in society. And we've had gay marriage in Canada for generations, but that doesn't mean that we still don't get the messaging from other countries because we're right, you know, we're neighbors to the USA. So it's not like we aren't getting the messaging from the USA being like, oh, oh, but you're not quite appreciated down here. And in a big city, you know, it's, it's, you know, I feel safe. I feel great being in Toronto. But if I went into the middle of, you know, above nowhere, Canada, I don't think I would feel the exact same. And I probably wouldn't be able to be myself as authentically as I'm able to be myself here. And it's, it's all part of it. And that, that's gonna take generations. But things like Heartstopper and these shows and these movies, the visibility is so important. And then on the flip side, the other people who are screaming like, oh, why do you need so much visibility? And it's like, because every fucking show until this point has been about straight people, you have generations of normalizing. We don't have generations of normalizing. So yeah, it's gonna be in your face because the pendulum is swinging Mm. to correct itself. It's the same with Black Lives Matter. It's, it has to be in the face of everybody constantly for generations now because it's been the opposite for so long. We need to course correct and it needs to swing in the opposite direction until eventually it can come back into the middle where it levels itself out. But these things are going to take time and we need to continue to do the work around it.
1: I'm snapping. I Everything <laughs> you just said, just like
0: absolutely. Feel, yeah,
1: because it, it's so... It's so true that we, you, these things don't happen in a microcosm, right? Um, it is amazing that we start to have experiences as a gay adults, hopefully, where you you do find safe spaces, right? And and those safe, safe spaces become so important to those communities. Um, but the thing is, is what you're speaking to, and something that I, I I struggle with a lot is what happens when you leave those safe spaces, right? Like you said, like. I, I was thinking, you know, no, oh, I've never gone to the South in the USA. Like, but do I want to go to the South? Would I feel safe? Like, and, th- and when the, the fact that we even have to ask those questions brings us back to this, you know, this theme of depression of like, I don't really want to go back to a place where I'm going to have to question myself. And, um, oh my God. And and the, the overthinking of how do I talk? How do I present myself? How do I look? How do I, it, it, it really is, it all is so compounding into it, devastatingly um, not surprising why depression is so prevalent in our communities. And also at the same time, we're told gay men are supposed to be fun. We're supposed to be stylish. We're supposed, to, right? Like again, those stereotypes that come in and like how we're supposed to present uh, the gay best friend. And and those these things we are breaking down. in the more stories we hear and the more um, experiences we have but you don't want to be this sad gay boy, like that people don't want to have that title about them. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we realize it's actually a universal experience, hopefully will create some more space so that you can have the whole breath of life. That's really what, what treating depression is about. It's not about not feeling sad. It's not about not having bad days and feeling unmotivated or lazy. It's about being able to experience the spectrum of our feelings and the spectrum of the anger, the rage, right? Because like you said, the rage isn't going anywhere.
0: No, it needs to get released in a constructive, healthy manner.
1: Exactly. It's not about getting rid of feelings. And that's something that I think really shows up in my practice of, I don't want to feel this thing. They come to me because they're like, I want you to get rid of the sadness. I want you to get rid of the heaviness. I want tomorrow to be able to pop out of bed, go to work, feel productive, feel purposeful, and please help me feel that way. And I tell my clients, you know, my job isn't to make you feel differently per se, to make you feel more, Mm -hmm. to give you the liberation and the freedom to feel your feelings.
0: And to understand the feelings and the tools in order to sort through those feelings and unpack them. Yes. Which is why it's so, 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 so important for people to work through either programs or, you know, that's why we created the Gay Men's Brotherhood. So we could create this community of people who are, you know, lightly dipping their toe into these conversations where it's like, it is hard, it is difficult. People are gonna rub up against each other. There's gonna be fighting, there's gonna be anger because there's been generations of it packed on us. It's not just going to come off and be like, okay, we're done. It's going to be like an onion, unpeeling every single thing. Um, And this is the perfect segue into the next part of this is, you know, someone who's struggling currently with depression, how can they start moving out of that cycle? And one of the biggest key things is, you know, working with a therapist, starting to understand what your feelings are. Why are your feelings there? What are the tools that you can then get to put into your tool belt, to start sifting through all this stuff. Um, But I know that that can also be hard, because if you're in the deep cycle, you don't even want to reach out. So if somebody's really in there, how can they even start, like, to try to figure out where to go next?
1: Yeah, and this is one of those questions um, that there are some, right, some of those how to's, and then there's also the, the real kind of what's behind that question, right? It's like, it's such, I think we, we can't underestimate like what you just said, how difficult it is when you're in that place. And I always think that when someone reaches out for therapy or in any sort of support or um, way that that first step of asking for help, oh my God, like we may think it's just another call or, or um, that it might be easy, but that is so often the hardest part I do you know as a therapist we do consults before we kind of jump into working with, with clients and oftentimes those 10 15 20 minutes can be healing in itself for someone because mm-hmm. they've reached out for help and they're they're getting their their hand is being grabbed. So I say that because it's um for the for the person who feels hopeless that says oh it, there's no point it won't change anything I I really um I really want to say that there's something to creating a bit of space, even a fraction of space that the voice inside your head that says nothing's going to change and challenging that can, can change your life. I think in many ways, cause it can give you at least an opportunity to make a choice to take a step closer to someone.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important too, because for me myself, how I've experienced it is that you know, when you get into this depression of like, oh, am I even here? Am I even relevant? Am I even being seen? I'm not feeling seen. Am I real? Like, you know, what is this existence? For me, working with a therapist has been that person on the other side being like, I see you. I am here seeing you and validating you as an individual and as a person. And that in itself is so powerful to just be like, okay, someone sees me you know, it's not everybody, it's not the whole world, nothing's perfect, but there is an individual who sees me, who sees the struggle and the things that I'm going through, and they're there to help support me, and, you know, it, therapy can be expensive, but there's also lots of programs out there that, you know, community center, community programs, government programs that you can, you know, might be a little bit more difficult, which sucks, because it's already so difficult for somebody to reach that first step, because it is, It's not just a first step. It's like you're climbing over a mountain and then at the top of the mountain, then that's when the normal steps start and it does get easier. But that first one is like so freaking difficult.
1: Well, to go back to the nervous system, right? The first, like what you're talking about, the, the mountain you're climbing is getting back, getting your nervous system back on, right? The first step is how do I get myself to wake up from this? And, um, that heaviness really does a good job of, of telling you, oh no, this is this is better than the anxiety that you might feel or the rejection you might feel. And, and our minds have this amazing ability of, of teaching, uh, telling us a narrative and reinforcing that narrative. So when we you know, are looking for evidence of, yeah, you see, I, I tried to reach out to a friend and, and they didn't respond right away. That kind of reinforces the narrative that they don't care. And we-
0: um, Or you I ask think- somebody out and they don't respond for like a week. And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, they don't like me. And you Mm -hmm. make up all these stories about what's going on. And then all of a sudden they message you and they're like, oh, that would be great. And it's like, they don't go on Tinder every single day. Maybe they go on only on the weekends. You don't know their story.
1: Exactly. That's exactly it. It's like, how do we, when we're looking for things to reinforce our narrative about why we, why we feel this way, we're very good. We're very good at coming up with why we feel the way we do and why we shouldn't. Challenge that belief or that self-critic, um, and and to speak to your point, yeah, therapy. There are some um, barriers for people to get into therapy. It's and it, it is a, an issue that I feel really strongly about. And so I know in your episode with Jake, you talked about kind of you know if if fee is a problem the. Uh, I think you mentioned. I, I was actually really excited to hear that. I think you mentioned the the tax rebate that you can get from, from therapy and in, in where you're from. So I oh yeah, in your... Canada.
0: Oh yeah, you yeah. can claim it. <laughs> I just did my taxes. She's getting back money. Like you can you can write off not write off, but like you can add medical expenses to your bottom line as an individual. It's not about business. It's a, as an individual. Save your dental. Save your it's per province, of course, but no, save that and add it into your medical expenses at the end of the year for your taxes. Like that, that's important stuff. So there are ways, it's not like you're going to get it all back, but there are ways to make it more accessible. And even things like this podcast, if this is your first step, it's a great first step because at least you're gaining the knowledge, at least you're getting the understanding and the conceptual ideas of it under your belt. So then this could be your stepping stone to those things. Joining the Gay Men's Brotherhood Facebook group, starting to interact a little bit here and there can be another next step. And then the next one after that. So you can find these little micro steps before taking that bigger step of actually reaching out and finding a therapist for yourself for that kind of thing.
1: And if you're not, and I, I always say, right, The three things that I kind of am a proponent of, especially when talk, and this isn't just for depression. This is if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling um, disconnected. Um, My first question for myself and for others is when they start saying they feel disconnected from others or their work, I I usually like to point them towards maybe there's a part of you that's feeling disconnected from yourself. So maybe you need to do some grounding. And so you mentioned yoga. I think yoga, I'm so glad that yoga is so in the mainstream now. I think it's just Amazing. It it works your body. It works the mindfulness. Um, meditation. The, the amount of people I I hear who say, Oh, meditation isn't for me. If you are one of those people, meditation is you are the one for meditation. <laughs> <You need it. laughs> yeah. It, I always like to say, if you're the one who who struggles with it, then that I think is a good indicator that this is something that it's a practice. Um, and the last thing I like to plug is I think um I, I shared that. Before I was a therapist, um, I, I, I pursued creative writing, and so writing for me, I think journaling um, is has just been kind of an amazing. I, I journal personally every morning, and it not even any. I don't even know what I'm always writing about, but just getting in touch with what the content of my mind and my heart is, um, and just kind of becoming aware of that, it creates such a space between things, and when you are feeling heavy rage, heavy shame, it's really hard to create that space to challenge it. And so by writing it down, talking about it with someone, it creates that dissonance that allows you to kind of change your perspective on it and realize that, yes, it's how I feel, but it may not have to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And so that's my plug for yeah. Some
0: I like to do that in, in, in meditation and in my kind of world, I like to do the third person perspective where it's like, this is me, this is the rage I'm feeling, or this is the whatever I'm feeling, yeah. and then doing gratitude or whatever kind of forces me into that third person outside of myself where I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, what's, what's the, what's the actual facts that an outsider is looking at, mm-hmm. and then it can kind of remove me outside of my inner thoughts and kind of put me into a different perspective and go, okay, where am I not really being truthful with myself or where am I making up a story that doesn't really re- exist? Um, all right, let's move on to the last bit here which is how can someone best support someone else who's struggling with depression? Um, you know, the kind of language to use and things maybe not to say or do that people think, oh, I'm helping, but really you're not helping.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with the first one. Um, I think unsolicited advice, usually good to steer away from. Um, I myself obviously am a therapist, but I do not, I've learned pretty quickly that people do not always love being therapized all the time. Um, there's a time and place for that. And people, if they want it, can search for it. Um, this is, this is a really interesting question because I focus a lot on language. I think when we ask someone, are you okay? it really puts a person in a position to have, if they're not feeling okay, to either feel like they're going negative and say no, um, or feel like they have to lie and say yes, right? We live in a world where we're in, um, sometimes our interactions with people are so brief, you know, hey, how are you? Good, nothing good. And so I really focus on saying, how are you? Leaving it open to the person to, and then, you know, if they say good and you say, you can say, really? I, I'm curious about, about where you're at. I'm, I'm, I'm missing you, right? I'm I'm wanting to hold space for you. It, it, I guess in, in it to kind of bring to the synthesis of this is I think the way to support someone who's struggling with depression or any mental illness is an invitation. An invitation that I'm here, I want to hold some of this with you. I don't want you to be alone. Avoiding fix it mentality. Um, uh, being you know, sometimes when someone we love is going through a hard time, it brings up our own anxiety. It brings up our own worry and and we want to help. And so we want to jump in and we want to we want to say, oh, you right, fix
0: it We're, and save the day and become the heroes.
1: We want our friend back. We want our mom back. We want our our sister back, right? So we want to do what we can to help them. And what we don't realize is sometimes in those messages, what's being the unspoken is it's not okay what you're feeling and we need to do something about it to take it away so that Mm. we can and
0: I actually I have to interject because I love this part because it's like the movie Inside Out and you know how sadness just goes and cries with bing bong and it's just like joy's like what the fuck and it's just like because joy's the fix it joy's like let's fix it and then sadness is just like sometimes you just need to sit with the person and be it's just about being there it's not about fixing it's just saying I'm who said it I can't remember what happened, where I was reading this, but there was this experience where this woman or person had a child and there was this old man crying like the neighbor or something. And then the kid just went up and sat on his lap and just didn't do anything, just sat with him and he cried until it was done and whatever. And then the parent was like, what, what were you doing? And the kid's just like, I was just helping him cry. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, that's sometimes that's all we need. You don't need anything else, just somebody to see you in your pain, acknowledge you to see that you're there, just be there with you. And that when you're ready to know that you're still there.
1: See somebody, right? It really is, it's witnessing somebody and witnessing someone where they're at. It's not about, you know, I think it's important about what, what they need. And if they if they do have a need or a desire that needs to be shifted, I think that's always important to create space for, but really just, giving someone the opportunity to say, I'm hurting. I'm not feeling, I don't know. Something feels wrong with me. And oftentimes not even jumping into challenging, right? Sometimes when we challenge that because we don't agree with it, it shuts it down. But just saying that really sucks. I know that feeling, right? I, I sympathize or I empathize with that feeling because I oftentimes feel, and, and some of that sameness, right? That's what we, we want to know that we're not broken. We want to know that we're not alone in this. And so, when you if you have someone in your life, um, I w- I will say you know there are sometimes the people in our lives who struggle with mental illness, um, or mental health, I should say, it can be hard for us sometimes to we sometimes can lose that compassion because we we're not the most patient people. We have our own life to feel, and we can feel like we need to give up everything in order to caretake someone. That's often not what the person needs. The person's usually worried about being a burden. They're worried that if they share this that the, that you will feel the need to take care of them and that it will disrupt your life or you'll get infected with their shame or their sadness or their depression. And I think making sure that you yourself feel that you're taking care of yourself, I think modeling how to take care of yourself um, while being in relation with someone who's struggling to do the same can be an amazing corrective experience of I can take care of myself and I can be here for you, and I can hold space for you, and you don't need to take care of me right now by hiding your feelings. Mm-hmm. that's how that's how we were trained. We were trained to take care of other people by not making them uncomfortable with our gayness, with our anxiety, with our depression, and saying, I can take care of myself and I can also give some to you and mm-hmm. and you don't need to worry about me take you know creating that space for you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so I, I think that's kind of my gist of how I kind of would kind of coach someone if they were really worried about someone and and missing someone.
0: Yeah. And it is important to take care of yourself and fill your own cup first, you know, do your own therapy, go to your own groups, do your own like uh, fun adventures and things like that. And then continue to be around that person as like a catalyst so that they can see, okay, maybe there is options. Maybe there is you know, ways to be different and to change, but that has to be that person's choice. It can't be I fix this or I fix you or any of that kind of shit. It has to be, I'm just going to stand in my power and stand in my light. And if you see it and you want to get attracted to it and you want to go in that direction and learn, you will take those steps, but I'm not doing it to fix you or anything. I'm just doing it for myself.
1: I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. There's this, um, you know, our, our our brains and our bodies. We want to take good things in. Our, our, we're really adept at taking good things in when we're open to them. And so, I think um, I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. That if you can take care of yourself and stay connected to this person, whether they want to stay connected or not, you'll be. It'll be really a, a beautiful experience to kind of have both of you guys have a learning experience. And you know, maybe their experience will help you with something you're struggling with. Right, having that shared commonality. It can be a really beautiful space and, and, and a difficult one, a really uncomfortable one sometimes, but the uh, the intimacy of it can be a really, really nourishing one. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Uh, well, I think we can end things there on that beautiful note. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you, Jacob. Where can people find out more information about you or your work if they're interested?
1: Yes, so I have a private practice, again, that functions um, mostly telehealth, but also in Los Angeles. Um, you can find more about me on Uh, Social media is to come, not not quite there yet, but uh, at, or you can find me on LGBTQ talk, uh, therapy space working in Colorado and California. And I really, I I can't advocate enough for what Jake, I'm Jacob, he's Jake, um, has set up and, and created. It's a really beautiful experience to be able to, to be a part of.
0: Yeah. And it's fantastic. And I'll have all that in the show notes for everybody to uh, find out more information if they like. If you've liked this episode, please, please share it. We need to normalize these conversations and people need to know about it. Um, Share it on your social media. If you're following this on iTunes or wherever you're listening, give us a star rating. We really appreciate it. Um, And leave us a comment. We'd love to read those out as well. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button and hit the little bell. It'll notify you every time we release new episodes every Thursday and also give it a thumbs up because we really appreciate that as well. And I think that's it for today. So thank you so much, Jacob. Have the best day ever. And we will catch you. you all next time. Peace, love, rainbows. Bye.